All right, Mickey here with an advert for BetterHelp Therapy Online. You all right? Such a small question and sometimes such a big question too, eh? Now, regular listeners will know I am no stranger to depression and while over time and with the help of some decent counselling and brilliant friends and family, I've established a toolkit to help when the constantly dripping tap of life gets a bit too much. That does not mean I am a stress-free human rainbow skipping through meadows. I mean, who is? We all carry around different stresses, big and small, and sometimes we can deal, and sometimes it's much harder to cope. Life, innit? Right now, I have a teenage puppy to deal with, and although I love her very, very much, she can be a lot. There, said it. And as quick a fix as it seems to say, I'm fine, I'm fine, and push it all down into the big inside box and put that lid on. For me, that hasn't been a great long-term solution in that if I don't get it off my chest, it will at some point come bubbling up and it's never been one to pick its moments in a good way. I find talking means I can avoid it exploding out of me like a messy emotional volcano all over my nana's carpet. Also, during my various times in talk therapy, I discovered that saying something out loud or writing it down can make it seem much more manageable than allowing it to swirl around and grow ever bigger in my head. If you're thinking of starting therapy, Give BetterHelp a try. I've found knowing how to reach out is sometimes the toughest bit, but BetterHelp is entirely online. Boom. Which means it couldn't be easier. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist, then work your sessions around your schedule. With more than a thousand therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Standard issue listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash standard. That's betterhelp.com slash standard. Standard issue for all women. Hello, Mickey here. Welcome to a Sunday Chops with a Difference. As you know, because we have been wanging on about it, we've been up at the Edinburgh Fringe for a spell. We're back now and have just about managed to dry out, but while we were up at the world's biggest arts festival, we also got to see some cracking shows and chat to the birds behind the stories and in front of the audience. And so, unlike our usual Sunday focus on one topic, this week we've got chats with four excellent women for you. I chat to American comedian Natalie Palamides, winner of last year's Newcomer Award, and this year on stage as titular character Nate, Nate is a mustachioed young bloke, based in toxic masculinity, but trying really hard to do the right thing, which all sounds incredibly earnest, when in fact it's an absolute riot of physical comedy, with Palamides pushing boundaries all over the shop. Nate is on at the Pleasance Courtyard until August of 26, but the entire run is now sold out. However, Palamides is back at London's Soho Theatre in November, and I heartily recommend that you go see her. Hannah catches up with Ingrid Garner about her play Eleanor's Story, An American Girl in Hitler's Germany, which is based on Ingrid's grandmother's experiences as a child when she was forced to move to Nazi Germany and try to fit in as the war broke out around her. You can find Ingrid in the dining room of the Gilded Balloon at 12.30pm until August 27th. Jen talks swimming, being a teenage girl at school, and how sport can easy angst a little with Katrina Quinn, whose show Individual Medley ends today, actually. However, if you're listening to this on Sunday morning, and you're in Edinburgh, and you can move fast, you could still get a ticket for the final 11.55am performance. And nevertheless, it is a really good chat. 
Finally, Hannah also talks to Alyssa Anne Junyi about the stereotyping of Asian women from the lotus flower to the super sexualized to the dragon lady, about dealing with her sexual assault and amid all that, looking for love. Love Songs is on at Cowgate at 2.40pm until August the 26th. Okay, now for the usual gubbins. Please spare two minutes to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and Acast. You can also rate and review them on iTunes while you're there and five stars would be bloody lovely. Thanks very much. And as well you know, we have loads of ear treats awaiting your shell likes, including our latest gig cast where me and Hannah laughed our arses off with Marion Keys, Vicky McClure and Katie Tunstall. But for now, over to you, already recorded me... Hello, it's Mickey here. I'm at the Edinburgh Fringe with award-winning US comedian Natalie Palamides, fresh off the stage from her show, Nate. That's right. Are you feeling fresh? I'm feeling very fresh. Thank you for asking. Yes, I'm still wet, have some glue on my upper lip and a black eye. Yeah. Just for the audiences at home. Spoilers. Yeah, spoiler. Although I think you can see that. Oh, I guess the wetness gives away some. Yeah. Yeah, that gives. But you don't know how I get wet. So, last year when you were at the Edinburgh Fringe, mm-hmm. you went and bagged an award. Congratulations. Thank you, you so much. Newcomer. Yes, I did. Thank you. I, I was so stoked. So sweet. Yeah. It was such an honor. So, were you excited about coming back? Yeah. I mean, I, I like, so badly wanted to come back. I had so much fun last year. And Dr. Brown, who I devised the show with, we had such a good time making it last year that we just wanted to do it again. Yeah? Yeah. So, I've just seen Nate. And yeah. it is... Beautiful, thought-provoking carnage. Ah, thank you. I think that's... Is that a compliment? <laughs> that is a compliment, that yeah. That is cool. Thank you so much. It's yeah. pretty anarchic. Can you give us a little bit of a rundown on what Nate is about for people who haven't seen it? I would just say Nate, in its simplest form, is just a love story. He's just trying to find love. At the beginning of the show, you find out that his girlfriend broke up with him and he was going to propose to her. And that he has a crush on his art teacher, and then they go on a date. But, you know, the the main theme of the show is consent with underlying tones of toxic masculinity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Nate, this is his first full-length show, but he's been knocking around with you for quite a while, right? Yeah, so I was working with a theater company in Philadelphia called the Pig Iron Theater Company. And uh, that was about six years ago, and we were workshopping a play... And they wanted to experiment doing characters in drag, so a bunch of different characters in drag. And so I was doing a bunch of male characters, and Nate popped out. The first bit I ever did with did with him was in silence, and I was just chugging a two-liter bottle of soda <laughs> watching television. Right. And he was burping intermittently, but just kind of like depressed watching TV. For this particular show, as you mentioned, consent is a really key theme within mm. it. Yeah. So which came first, the, the desire to do something more with Nate or the desire to talk about consent? The desire more to do something with Nate. Mm-hmm. I was actually dancing around consent for a long time and didn't really want to touch it because it is such a sensitive area with a lot of confusion around it. Yeah. And that's... That's mostly what the show is about, the confusion that surrounds consent and how I feel like we're only free, or it seems to me that people only feel free to talk about it on the internet and not person to person. But I think that this show encourages people to talk about it more face to face. Because as you see, there's a moment in the show where I ask the audience, 
what they think. Yeah. And it's usually met with silence, you know. But after the show, a lot of people tell me that it did strike up conversation about it, which I think only helps. It's like the more you talk about it face-to-face with people, the clearer it is. Absolutely. And I think... There's loads of laughs in the show. It is incredibly funny. I have cried off a lot of my eye makeup from laughing. It was brilliant. Ah, thanks. But there are those moments of awkwardness where you're pushing the audience. And it's because we don't usually talk about this stuff. Are you seeing different reactions from men and women in the audience? Uh, not based on if they're men and women, but I see, yeah, people just have different reactions to that moment in particular. Mm-hmm. So I don't think it's based on gender, whether you think this one moment is right or wrong. Yeah, I see women say that it's right and wrong, and men say that it's right and wrong. Yeah. Yeah, it's been just a really mixed bag. But I think, you know, that's part of the problem is that so many people... It's like when somebody gets murdered, you're like, yeah, everybody agrees. Yeah. You know, that that's bad. It is bad. Murder is bad. I think so, too. And if we leave this podcast with one thing today, (laughs) that will be it. But so, yeah, I think the more we just talk about consent, the clearer it can be for everyone to hopefully eventually one day come to some sort of agreement, you know, and it's like only talking about it can help. You know, might might never be perfect because, you know, the gray area, they say. Because Nate is trying trying to express himself he's like riddled with toxic masculinity Mm -hmm. that seems like learned behavior Mm -hmm. and he wants to be a good guy yeah he really does yeah yeah that's where um his likability comes i think the audience can see that he really wants to be good and wants to be a good person so i think that's where the audience is able to feel for him and he just becomes this lovable idiot and it's incredibly timely because obviously we've had hashtag me too mm-hmm. and hashtag times up. Mm-hmm. And you're from LA, right? That's where I live. Okay. Yeah. So what has the atmosphere been like over there? Because that seems to be the hot point, particularly for me too and times up. Yes. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's very delicate and as it should be, you know, it's like finally this stuff is coming to the surface and people are paying attention to it more and... I think men are being a lot more careful about what they say and how they act around women, which can be a good thing and a bad thing. It's like some, I don't think that we have set out to like repress people, you know, repress their sexuality or like urges, but you know, it's a balance. Yeah. It's all a balance and it's about learning the balance and right now or before Me Too, I think it swung a little bit too heavily in the male direction, and so now it's just about getting it to an equal place, equal playing field. But it's not about repression, you know. It's like someone has torn up the rule book, Mm because they've worked out the rules were wrong. Yeah. But there's not anything else put in place yet. Yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, we need to talk about it. Yeah. I think I sound like a broken record. Talk-a-talk, we need to talk, (laughs) we need to talk. But we do, we just need to talk, and I think we need to do it in person, not just online. You know, you see so many people, like, expressing their frustration with this in paragraphs on Facebook or Twitter or whatever, but I think it's so much more helpful to do it face-to-face. Do you find that because of Nate and what you're saying within the show that people are coming to you for answers? Oh, no, I don't think so. (laughs) I think it's pretty clear they know I don't have the answer. (laughs) But, 
Yeah. Well, my answer is, again, to talk about it. And, Nate, it is pretty anarchic. There's a lot of clowning in there, but mm-hmm. not in the kind of white face, terrifying, scary at kids' parties way. Yes, thank you so much. <laughs> yeah. Physical comedy. Yeah. Yeah. Is that kind of where you come from, that, that world? Yes, I do. Well, in university, I started learning clowning and devised theater and physical theater from a really awesome professor named Dr. Richard Kemp. And he's actually from England, but he studied with Lecoq, um, who is like a movement clown guy. And yeah, so he kind of like sprung my interest in that. And then I started working with a theater company in Philadelphia called the Pig Iron Theater and worked on my first devised play with them. And they encourage a lot of physicality and melodrama and images and absurdity. And so when I came out to L.A., I was craving someone to work with who had experience like that, and I met Dr. Brown. Yeah, who's won awards for that kind of thing? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, yeah, we just clicked. Do you sort of push each other to go a bit further? Yes, I think so. I mean, definitely. I mean, we've talked about maybe me directing him in a show. We'll see. I don't know if he. Would, totally I don't know do if he would take direction from me. He's very, <laughs> very particular, and he has directed himself like so many times. Whereas, like. Me with him, I'm like, yes, mentor me, please. But, like, he doesn't need... He's already had mentors, you know? But it would be fun to see what might happen. But, yeah, he definitely pushes me. Like, I find myself being lazy sometimes with jokes. I'm like, yeah, that moment, it works. And he's like, but no. He's like, that could really get a big laugh. You know? He's like, let's fix it so it gets a really big laugh and I'm like it's fine and then he's like please Natalie think about this you know and so we think about it and then of course yeah we we come up with something and it gets like a really big laugh so it looks like fun which Mm -hmm. I feel wary of saying to someone who it's your job so obviously there's a shitload of craft has gone into that Mm -hmm. but with laid as well with all the eggs and the mess is it quite fun to be anarchic on stage? Oh, yes. I love yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's what attracted Phil and I to working with each other is he has that natural inclination to be anarchic. And I do, too. And then so a lot of people think I learned that from him, but it's truly just like already how I was. Are you sort of silly in real life? Yeah. I'm, um, yeah. You're a prankster. I'm a little prankster. Yeah, I was always class clown. You've used clowning to talk about two really important topics now. Because mm-hmm. obviously people don't really talk about women's bodies and fertility and whether you want kids or not, and that's what you were covering in Laid. Mm-hmm. And now Me Too and consent and the lack of discussion around that. Yeah. Why do you think it works? Oh, I couldn't tell you, Mick. But I think sometimes it's just people need to laugh uh, around areas of frustration it's like we're focusing so much on the frustration of it and we do need a release yeah you know so it's healthy to have a release on these topics even though they are so delicate it helps us open up about them to have a release and be able to laugh about it even though they aren't light topics you know but it's never at the expense of um I'm not making fun of sexual assault. No, not it, at all. It's more of the confusion around that surrounds it. 
I think also when you get people to relax and you get them laughing and they're on side and then you throw them a curveball that's quite serious, they're more open to thinking about it ah, or they go away thinking about it. That's true. That's a really good point. Yeah, I would agree with you on that one. Yeah, I think just laughing keeps people open. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Yeah, it's healthy. So what's next? I mean, I've got to stress Ooh. for our listeners that it's mid-Edinburgh Fringe run when I'm chatting to Natalie, so you might not be able to see past your day off tomorrow. Yeah. But what's after Nate? Well, I'm definitely going to see some sheep tomorrow. I might ride in a canoe um, <laughs> in a Scottish river somewhere, or a loch, as you guys say, or as the Scottish yeah, say. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to claim to be that. Scottish. Yeah, yeah, you're not Scottish, but... After Nate, I'll go to L.A. and maybe come up with a new one-hour show to bring back next year or work in TV or try to come up with a short or TV pitch. Yeah? Yeah. Do you think you'll be back at Soho Theatre? Yes, I will. Oh, yeah. Duh. I'll be back at the Soho Theatre in November doing a run of Nate. Amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for sparing the time to talk to yeah, us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Nice, Mick. <laughs> See you later. Hi, I'm here in the Gilded Balloon with actress Ingrid Garner. I have just watched her play, Eleanor's Story, which is on at 12.30 in the dining room at the Gilded Balloon, and it was absolutely incredible, I have oh, to say. Thank you. Well done. Now, it's really moving. I mean, it is a really great story, but I think what makes it extra moving is it's actually your grandmother's story. That's true. Isn't it? So maybe if you give us a tiny precinct for the listeners of what to expect. Sure. My grandmother, Eleanor, was a, a young American girl born in America of German immigrant parents. And her and her brother and parents were living in New Jersey in 1939 when her father was offered this great job in Berlin. Uh, and he felt like it was an unmissable opportunity. So in August of 1939, they packed up their things and got on a ship, the SS Hamburg, and as they were crossing the Atlantic, Hitler declared war on Poland, and by the time they arrived in Germany, they couldn't return for various reasons. So they, they were stuck in Germany for the entirety of the war in Berlin and for about a year afterwards during the Russian occupation and survived. You actually based this on your grandmother's book, on her memoirs, which I'm going to have to rush out and read. One of the first reactions that I had to this when I was watching it was like, I mean, it was a hopelessly naive decision on your great-grandparents' part, so it's quite difficult not to feel a bit angry with them for that. Yes. Is that something that you, you thought about? Certainly, and I, I wish that he was around to ask these, particularly of my, my great-grandfather. I, I wish that he was around to ask these questions, but he's not. But what I can imagine is they were, they were suffering the Great Depression like everyone was uh, in America, and and I, we know now that Hitler was like sending out letters to former German citizens and offering them good jobs to come back. So he gets a letter saying that he's going to get a great government job and an apartment and an exchange rate of four German marks to one dollar, and his family's starving. So I, I don't know that he felt that he had a choice. And it was a massive culture shock when they arrived, yeah. obviously. I mean, it's a culture shock when you move to any foreign country, but there's a scene in this where she goes into a shop and she has to say, I'll hit that. Because it's difficult because children, they mimic their peers in order yes. to fit in. And yet mimicking your peers in this stage was... was basically joining the Hitler Youth, although she wasn't yeah. actually allowed to join the Hitler Youth. Yeah, well, she her, her mother let her go only if she was permitted to not attend the, the Nazi indoctrination meetings. So she was she was only uh, participating in, like, diving and other sorts of, like, you know, Boy Scout, Girl Scout yeah. kind of activities. 
Yeah, tremendous uh, a pressure to fit in. I mean, you go into a new country and you already like are at a disadvantage. You're the new girl at school. Um, she wanted to fit in just like any nine-year-old girl uh, wants to. Teachers weren't particularly nice to her, were they? Because she was an outsider, an American. Yeah, so they, they were a little bit uh, wary of her and, and kind of picked on her a little bit. She got uh, disciplined more than maybe other students did. She she had been raised with German parents. She spoke the language well, so she was she was able to fit in in that in that sense. Yeah, fairly well. because it was very actually it was very contrary to the way they they had been raised. I mean, there's a, there's a scene in which I mean you play lots of different people <laughs> in this, but it's a scene in which her brother Frank. Uh, also played by you. He does what he has been raised to do, which is stand up on a, a public transport and offer the seat to an older woman. Mm-hmm. And he is castigated for it because she's Jewish. Yeah. Which is, it, it, it's it's incredible mixed messages to send out to children. He's obviously been raised well. That's what you're supposed to do. Yeah. But now it's life-threatening yeah. uh, to do that. To have manners. Yes. It, it must have been so extraordinarily difficult for them. It was very, it's very dangerous to harness, you know, children, because the, chil- uh, the children in the Hitler Youth were indoctrinated to, to report anyone who was making ne- negative comments about Third Reich or Hitler or the war, even if it was their own parents. So sometimes kids in, you know, how they get mad at their parents, sometimes yeah. they would just, they would just say just to, because they were angry at their parents and then their parents would be, ki- you know, hauled off and killed. They'd never see them again. It's a ho- horror. It's a horrible thing. Yeah, though this play is set. A long time ago. It feels very timely because of the world that we're living in now, because it's about living under a dictatorship. I mean, as an American, you you feel that. Yeah, we feel it more now. And I think that Americans are coming to understand how easy it might be for a dictator to rise to power. I performed this the weekend after the 2016 election in which Trump was uh, elected, and that was very striking. I I felt, as the things I was saying became so relevant to me suddenly like uh, I, I talk about at the beginning how Hitler d- created distrust in the media and sort of this anti-press sentiment which is very dangerous and an important aspect of Hitler's rise to power uh, and it's been very yeah it's been the heaviest part of about doing this show now but it feels more important than ever to be doing it and telling this story a lot of this obviously because it's your grandmother's story a lot of this focuses on women's bodies. I mean, your great-grandmother had two more babies during yes. that period, which can't have been easy. You know, <laughs> you talk about your grandmother getting her first period and like there being yeah. no no access to sanitary like protection oh, or anything, which sounds really terrible. And also the terrible like looming threat of rape as the Russians came in. Is that tough to do? That it. I mean, of maybe of, of everything. It's the thing that doesn't that feels. The closest to being a reality. I mean, I mean just because it do, it happens so often, assault and rape, and these are real things that women have to worry about yeah. every day. And I have to worry about as a performer, you know, walking home late at night and, yeah. and stuff. Probably the hardest thing for my grandmother to accept about my lifestyle is that I, I travel the world by myself. But it, that's that's a very difficult part of the war to talk about and I, I try to do it as delicately and, and as non-triggering as I can but it is an important aspect to talk about because those those young soldiers those young Russian soldiers were indoctrinated with propaganda the, the Germans were evil and they, they they had been they had so much rage in them and once they won the war it was anarchy they just they poured all their hate and lust for revenge into the surviving women women and children seem to always take the brunt of the war. How did your grandma feel when she first saw you perform it? 
she loved it. She was so emotional, and she came up to me on stage as I was taking my bows, just flung her arms around me. And she told me she was so honored that I had taken the time to, to bring the story to life, and it was emotional to see me play her relatives, like her mother. And She is a very artistic person. She is a beautiful writer. A lot of the language in the play is from the book. She was an editor, so beautiful writer. So she was able to appreciate the theatricality of the play, which is which was so nice. She could appreciate how I creatively brought it to life using uh, the set and projections. So yeah, I'm very pleased. How did you actually first come to that decision that that was the thing that you wanted to bring to the stage? Um, well, I was uh, in my final semester of university getting my theater arts degree, and I was very worried, as many of my peers are, about the uh, uncertain nature of the entertainment world and how I was going to find a place in it. And I really thought that I didn't have the gumption to go up and audition in L.A. every day, and I thought that meant I couldn't be an actor until I went to a Fringe Festival. I went to the Winnipeg Fringe Festival in Canada, and I fell in love with the concept. I I loved how a Fringe show, it, because you, you know, you're writing it to suit your unique talents, um, it's very well suited to you, it's very personal, and you can be provided a platform almost anywhere on earth to, to, to find an audience, and I, I thought that was remarkable. I just needed a story to tell, because I wanted to participate. Do you get a different reaction in different countries to this? I mean, actually, from what I've read, it seems to be universally good. Everybody's yeah, loved well, that's, it. That's a good question. I, it's been pretty universally liked, but you know what? I, I don't think the reaction varies too much, because it is such a universal story. It was... We're still, we're all still connected to World War II through a parent or a grandparent. Uh, most of us, and it affected the world. It was World War, so people in Canada and certainly here in the UK, you know, war survivors here who come up to me after the show and say, "This is exactly what I went through as a, as a kid." And in Australia, there's a lot of post-war immigrants, so yeah, it's quite universal. So I felt like this was a perfect for dramatic interpretation and. And I thought it would be a spectacular novelty to have the actual granddaughter play yeah. her grandmother. Do you feel more responsibility with it being your grandma? I mean, I was when I was first, I was so nervous that it wouldn't be good. I, I did think, you know, no matter what I do, I can't mess it up because it's just such a good, it's just such an amazing story with so many twists and turns. I'm glad that it works because I, what I really wanted, the, the thing that I did not want it to be was just standing and reciting events. I, that's what I didn't like about some yeah. one-person shows. I wanted this to be an enactment. I wanted it to be very visual. The set is just a trunk and two chairs. It's amazing how many things you can create out of that. The Structures. scene where you are stroking the chair is amazing. I completely forgot it was a chair. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's incredible. Yeah, it's, as long as you can endow it. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of uh, it's on me as an actor to... I'm glad it's effective, and also just cre- you know creating all the different characters. And I have projections in the play, so that that adds to the photos of the destruction. Really, I think give the audience a, an important sense of the scale of how devastating it was for the yeah. city. So yeah, yeah, I'm I'm proud of it. Now the story doesn't stop here, obviously, no. because your, your grandma went on to lead a very full life. But yeah. actually, you you've been able to to mine that story for, mm-hmm. for some other reflections on current society. I think really sure. with the rest of her story. So can we hear about that? So I recently premiered a sequel to this. The book is just so rich in stories. There's hundreds of amazing stories in there. But one thing I got asked about a lot after my show was what happened to her after the war. You know, how did people treat them in America? So I I thought there was a good amount of material and interest to to write a second show. 
So the second show is called Eleanor's Story, Home is the Stranger, and I premiered it uh, in Australia. And it covers the year coming back to America after the war. The show kind of starts with them receiving a letter from the CIA saying that Eleanor, her brother, and her father are being granted visas to return to America, but the American government will not pay for her mother or her two baby uh, siblings who were born in Germany. So at the very beginning of the play, the family is separated, and she has to live for a year without her, her mother, which is the source of stability in her life. So her brother and father come back to America, and she has to try and navigate U.S. high school, which is this very kind of frivolous and funny thing, and, and it, the culture shock of that creates some funny moments. Uh, in the play, which is which is nice to have levity, because the other aspect of it is that she's suffering with PTSD, and PTSD sort of serves as a theatrical device to flash back to other moments of the war and demonstrate how PTSD works. Certain sounds or phrases that she runs into in America um, cause her to flash back to other disturbing parts of the war, and it's another story of trying to find her identity, just like she was trying to do as an American being uh, in Germany. Now she's a essentially a German trying to adapt to American society again. And what is she now? How does she describe herself now? Oh, she's an American. She's I mean, American. Yeah, yeah. She's, and she always felt American, but I think what she's been able to find later in her life now is a more of an appreciation for her German side, and, and that's kind of been a healing process to, to not feel shame about being German. She, can, she likes German poetry and art, and that's, that's, that's been something she's been able to find in later in life. Have you got plans to bring that to the UK? I'd love to at some point. I we'll see if I can afford it <laughs> after this run. Um, I think yeah, maybe in the next couple of years I, I can bring that that sequel. I'd like to work on it a little bit more and, and tour it and give it some more legs. But um, yeah, I think that's terribly relevant right now too. It's kind of the story of refugees. She's what she's going through is very much what refugees yeah. go through. So I think that would be important. You're up here until the end of Edinburgh, so, but if people can't get to see you here, they can still get to buy your grandma's book in yeah. all good bookshops. Yeah, you can order it through pretty much any bookshop, and it's also on Amazon.com. Uh, it's available in ebook and audiobook, so if that's your preference, uh, and it's it's a beautiful book. And it's called Eleanor's Story. An American Girl in Hitler's Germany, the same title as the show. Excellent. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you for having me. at the Edinburgh Fringe and I'm sat in a sort of fairly loud lobby. I'm with Katrina Quinn who is here with a, are we going to call it a play? That's probably the first of lots of good questions. I call it a spoken word show because there are a lot of words in it being spoken and storytelling so that's how it started. It started with the poetry and the storytelling and then the physical theatre and movement elements kind of joined in later. It's in the spoken word section of the of the Edinburgh Fringe brochure, but it could be a play if you want it to be a play. <laughs> You've mentioned the physical theatre element of it, which is relevant because the show, Individual Medley, is basically about your childhood and growing up and your teenage years and all in this sort of theme of your love of swimming. Can you tell us a bit about the show and, and how it came about? When I was 12, I moved from Basingstoke to Zambia, as you do, um, and I was there until I was 15, and it was a fairly significant chapter in life, partly just because of 
going there as a, a kid and coming back as a definite teenager and just being in a totally different culture. So it was something that stayed with me for a long time and I always thought about writing about it in some way. I've always written as in from like journals and diaries and then done a lot of poetry and performance poetry over the last 10 years or so. So I thought, oh, it will probably be a book one day. But then I went on a writing week, actually, after leaving a very full-on job in London and turning 30 and deciding I need to do more creative stuff. So I went on a writing week as a 30th birthday treat, and it was about memoir writing, especially about people who've, who've moved countries or travelled. So that's where kind of the swimming theme started coming, coming out of it as a, like a hook to hang the story on. But then I realised I always enjoyed most reading out what I'd written and being able to bring the kind of the energy to it and saying it out and then I love swimming obviously and I love dancing and moving and so I was like ah if I make this a show then I can just do all of it together and as a show rather than just like a poem behind a microphone where you're still quite restricted just having that space to be able to like yeah, bring my body fully into it. And then, then there was a lot of swimming and a lot of thinking about the rhythms of swimming, thinking, OK, how do you actually swim breaststroke and what does it actually sound like underwater and what's butterfly like? And then keeping on bringing that into the writing. So I probably had lots of bits of writing from over the years, from bits of poems and just kind of memoir scraps and stuff. But then it was really fun having the swimming element and thinking about teaching it and how you'd break the strokes down and then yeah that kept reshaping the chapters of it as it were and there is quite a lot of dancing in it to some uh, pretty banging 90s r&b tunes actually it's you you're a bit younger than me but probably around the same age and i understood a lot of the cultural references from the, from that and um, made me feel quite nostalgic what i found really interesting about it was it's kind of about, although your story is quite a specific story, as in, like, you know, we don't all move to Zambia as, as kids, actually the sort of universality of that experience of growing up, is that something that you wanted to bring out? Yeah, definitely. It, it's, I love talking to people afterwards and seeing, like, what hooked them. And, yeah, some people have been in tears because, you know, like, they moved country as a kid or they grew up in Africa or, like, swimming was just really important. So I guess there's lots of different entries into it especially music is what you realize connects your stories with both yeah both like especially people of like a similar age level and so yeah there'll be some people coming out being like oh I love those songs that you made up and other people clearly all those songs were like (laughs) reworkings of TLC and um, Backstreet Boys Boys, and there was Mariah (laughs) like so if no one could relate to it then I I wouldn't be that bothered about making it into a show so it was a bit of an experiment I think to see like well this is the story I can tell but then liking how it opens up conversations about people's experiences and yeah the different things that people connect with whether it's like wearing a bandana or like Donnay trousers because they were the cheapest sports brand around (laughs) yeah the food that you had to eat like in Basingstoke on a Friday night and when you've got lots of siblings or (laughs) 
<laughs> Some are quite random. And then any, even like the, I guess the background of kind of growing up in a church context. So again, for some people, there's references that make a lot of sense and that for others might go over their heads. I guess it's interesting, especially if there's like maybe older men, for example, that I'd say probably pretty far from my experience and, and demographic. But again, I think there's things that you can connect with or there's not. And that's cool too. I remember someone, one middle-aged man saying something about the drama in it or that there wasn't as much drama as they thought but then it was like well when you're 13 like everything's drama getting braces is drama and like a boy sending you a note and then like embarrassing you in front of everyone that is drama like it doesn't have to be that someone died (laughs) it is what it is when you're there I thought you really captured really well the experience of being a teenage girl the experience of being a teenage girl at school I felt quite moved by it as you say the drama is being a 13 year old it's quite interesting to me because lots of young girls girls of that kind of age that's the point at which they kind of shun physical activity and stuff but you kind of found some strength through the swimming I do think it's funny that I was so awkward in my body and so not confident about like how it looked and how it was changing and yet I spent most of my time in a swimming costume and so yeah I did very hurried entrance into the pool (laughs) but then it was suddenly when I was in the water all that awkwardness I just felt it wasn't present I think that water it gives you a bit of extra grace a bit of extra buoyancy you kind of have to slow down when you're in water you're not going to trip over because you can't really because it was so natural to me in terms of obviously swimming isn't relaxing for a lot of people and I think because it was like in my bones that just the breathing and trusting I guess you you trust yourself and you trust the water that you'll breathe at the right time and then once you're relaxed, that is when you can float, that is when you can play. And I, I mean, I did a lot of swimming training, but did a lot more just playing in the water. And I guess it was a place to connect with other people where it wasn't about like saying the right thing or knowing the right dance moves, which I definitely didn't have. <laughs> but it was just like, oh, I can do like a handstand in the swimming pool. I guess it kept things simpler, I think. And the only competition was like, if someone's faster than you, which probably didn't matter to me that much, actually. I wasn't, like, that bothered if I didn't win the race. I just, I like taking part. Because <laughs> I was still part of something, so I was part of the team without having to know the right cultural references or have the right accent or the right clothes. I mentioned my twin sister, and she was also, she was more of a runner, but I think it was probably a similar thing of just being physical, being outside. Those were a bit of an escape from the more complicated <laughs> aspects of, like, socialising and families and parents and stuff I guess I'm really lucky and that is the thing I was grateful for going moving to this school in Zambia which really focused on sports and really focused on outdoor education on adventure camps and climbing mountains and doing all sorts of things that you'd never be allowed to do when you're 13 in England so I guess it was a bit of a lifesaver actually and if I hadn't gone I don't know I think I would have struggled to find the confidence I did find eventually but who knows and it's funny because I I thought like oh yeah swimming was what I did growing up and that's how people kind of knew me but it was actually more in doing like this writing week and putting together the story being like oh yeah I always swam it was like one of those things you've always written that you don't really think about it you're like oh yeah of course I swam and of course all my favorite memories and favorite days were based around like oh it's because I got to swim in this really cool pool in this hotel and we got to jump in off the high wall for five hours in the afternoon or got to like swim in this river or in this lake or behind this waterfall so it was more a reflection of oh yeah that's where the joy always came from then yeah I guess becoming confident in how I moved there but I guess as the show explores I guess confidence build up 
built up to be able to dance. That's what I really wanted to do. I'm like, yes, swimming's fine, but I really want to be able to dance because that's what everyone else can do. I remember forcing myself to just stand on dance floors and be like, okay, Katrina, just you don't have to worry about your arms. Just like sway. Just, just, just don't run off this dance floor and just, just do it. Yeah, really forcing myself to do it, and a lot of time in front of mirrors, <laughs> practicing. And now that's another thing that brings so much joy and is another way to connect with people when I might not have the right words to say. It's another space I feel like you can yeah, build relationship and people can find confidence and freedom. Have you got any plans to do anything with the show anywhere else? Not at the moment. Um, I think coming to Edinburgh was a bit of an experiment, first time coming, even just to be like, can I perform a show? for like 14 days in a row because I've not done that before and yeah will anyone come and will people who don't know me and think it's great because they love me or they're like married to me uh, <laughs> what will people think of it just to be here and connect with people and have conversations so I think it will be more of a like get home and reflect where can people find you if they want to hear more about what you're doing so I'm on Twitter at Katrina's words which looks like Katrina swords which is kind of on purpose, but um, <laughs> I'm not selling metal work. So yeah, at Katrina's Words on Twitter, katrinaswords.com as a website, and on Instagram, I'm at cat underscore q. Katrina, thanks very much for chatting to us. Oh, thank you so much. It's been lovely to meet you. Thanks for coming. Hi, I'm here in the Pleasant Stone at the Edinburgh Festival with Alyssa Ann Jun Yi to talk about her Edinburgh show, Love songs. How is it going for you? Yeah, really good, thank you. This is your first fringe run, isn't it? Yes. Not even my first fringe run. My first run ever. Mm. Like, I've only performed for a night here and there and been performing for a year. So, yeah, quite incredible, actually. Your show is described as a hopeless romantic encounters issues on consent, sexual assault and stereotypes of East Asian women on her journey to find the one. That's quite a lot to unpack there so perhaps the easiest thing to start is what actually inspired you to sit down and write this it happened this is a bit wanky but it happened organically so the first time I came to Fringe was about three years ago and at that point I was studying law at university not enjoying it very much because I like writing and I had written a couple of poems about some bad sex that I had and in my head thought you know what if I perform these that might form the basis of a funny stand-up show and then I saw a lot of one woman and one man shows that were quite moving like Katie Bonner's All the Things I Lied About, Work Like Theatre, Labels, Duncan McMillan's Every Brilliant Thing and at that point I was also beginning to process what had happened to me in terms of sexual assault and thought actually these poems that I've written could form the basis of a show that tells a harder story but a story that perhaps is a very important one to tell so then that began a process over three years where I sort of was putting these poems together exploring all these issues exploring who I was as a person as well and coming to terms of what happened so that's what I mean when I say it developed very organically it was kind of a growing process as I grew over the past couple of years so has the show well I mean it sounds quite simple to say that you write about your experiences and you talk about your experiences but obviously talking about those experiences isn't a particularly easy thing to do does it get easier when you do it night after night well I think what's interesting but I'm talking about them in a 
in my own way. I've, in a very constructed way, like every word in the show, I've decided to say those words. There are things that I won't talk about. And even the way it's presented, there's some dance in the show, there's some music, there are props that are all glittery and embroidered with sequins. So it's very much I've decided to own that story and tell it in the way I want to tell it. Interestingly, I've done interviews with... (laughs) the independent, the Scotsman, but I've not been able to sit down and talk to my friends about it. So I think that just shows how, for some reason, I've found being on a stage has opened me up and I can be almost a different person and that's how I've been able to get it out of my system and talk about it because talking about it to actual friends is harder than talking to an audience full of strangers because then it becomes a bit about them, doesn't it, and their response to it. What sort of response have you had putting this sort of information into the public domain if you have people getting in touch with you? At the end of the show, I do a bucket collection of the rights of women, so I've always been on the door as people leave, and I wanted to thank every single one. The reason I like performing is, is because I love connecting with people. Some people have, like, come out of the show crying. A, f- a few people, not all, and have been like, oh, can I give you a hug? Um, some of the donations have been quite generous and I think that that is their way of showing that they've really responded to the issues in the show so that's actually really lovely I think it's it's going well, well, it's doing what I wanted it to do. So the, the other issue is that you talk about a lot in your show is the representation or the uh, portrayal of East Asian women. Yes. Which often is sort of one or two things, isn't it? It's like hypersexualized or it's very passive. How do you see that sort of manifested around you? Film, TV. When you very rarely do have an East Asian woman, I would say, because, you know, Scarlett Johansson in Ghost in the Shell, the yeah. only Asian woman in that film was someone playing a geisha. So yeah. so there's a whole other issue of whitewashing parts, and then the parts that remain on stage and on screen are these stereotypes of super sexualized and quite submissive or, or even stereotypes that perhaps are less damaging than the ones to do with sex which is like the clever best friend or I want to see more sassy Asian women, that's the thing all the Asian women I know are so strong but that's not really something that is represented that much either Gilmore girls had a a not sure where she was from because I don't watch it. Korea, but, uh, I think. I wish you from Korea. Yeah, but also, um, quite famously, the uh, Lucy Liu character in mm. Ali McBeal, which was, it was very icy, very cold, very sort of manipulative. The dragon thing. lady, yeah. apparently that's a stereotype as well. Yeah, but do you, do you see it in the way that women interact with you on a romantic level, the sort of the fetishization? Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and that, because this show is my coming-of-age story... That was an important part for me to explore my race in coming of age. Like, what what does that do? How does that set you up for discovering yourself sexually? Because for so long, because I didn't see any strong Asian female characters to identify with, I believe that I've been perpetrating these stereotypes too in my interaction with men because they've been interacting with me in a certain way and I've been reciprocating that because all I saw... Even like Chinese dramas, which I watched as a kid, the woman is very much like the little lotus flower. So it's not not just a stereotype that's perpetrated in Western stories, actually, I think is important to recognise. 
And so I was behaving like that in my interaction. So I was reinforcing that stereotype too. It's only at this point which I look back on it and realise, oh, I wish I had seen more characters yeah. that had empowered me. And that's why it's so important for me to do this show because just... I don't even have to say much. Just being there on stage and being an empowered Asian woman is yeah. enough, I think. Do you think it's getting better? Are you seeing more positive representations of women you can identify with? I think it's too early to tell. I, I don't want to be negative. I, I do believe that change is happening, but I agree with what you're saying. We have such a long way to go. Um, what's quite ex exciting is Crazy Rich Asians just came out in America, and that's a film with all with all the Asians in it, and a very sassy um, Asian female character. It's a chick flick. There will be certain stereotypes in there, but what's what I think is interesting with stereotypes. So the stereotype is the the mother-in-law is quite. I think I haven't seen it, so don't quote me on this. But the mother-in-law is quite strict, and she doesn't like this this girl marrying her boy. But it's been written by Asians, so it's almost like little stereotypes there, like with Fresh of the Boat. Yeah, they are. You're allowed to laugh because it's been written for that yeah. audience by people who actually understand why it would be funny. Yeah, it's um, going to be a reflection like of the your Dragon Mum yeah. stereotype that like stereotypes are like a little bit true but I think the problem with stereotypes is that then they're, they're just one idea they're just one one representative of a specific type of person so if it's a part being written by Asians who understand the nuances to that stereotype yeah. then that's why, where it can where I think we're allowed to laugh at it but yeah it's very exciting that film basically Crazy Rich Asians because apparently there are a lot of conversations happening especially in America where if that does well there'll be more films yeah. coming out like yeah. that but it's a shame that we have to wait for that one to do well to get more representation because that wouldn't happen if it was like a, a white film it's absolutely <laughs> like a black panther it's odd that it has to take a film to actually prove that point what is next for you are you touring this at all after edinburgh so these are conversations we're having at the moment and this is why i'm in edinburgh in the first place and <laughs> buy lots of venues to see my show we'll probably be announcing fingers crossed tour dates soon we'd like to do quite a small regional tour yeah. to start off with but I've been very generously supported by Chinese Arts Now an organisation who are going to put on a festival next year of contemporary British Chinese performance across London um, so that's something very exciting to keep your eye out for and I will be performing love songs as part of their festival so stay tuned that will be quite an exciting one and if people want to know more about you where can they get in touch you have a website my website is alyssaajycooper.com and my theatre company Trip Hazards also has a website which is triphazardstheatre.com and on Twitter I'm Alyssa A-L-I-S-S-A underscore A-J-Y excellent so when and where are you um, so I'm at Underbelly Cowgate in the Delhi Belly at 2.40pm every day until the 26th that's all from this Sunday Chops. Thanks very much for listening. What an incredible bunch of broads, eh? We have more chats with excellent women currently doing their thing at the Edinburgh Festivals coming up on Wednesday. Hannah's talking to Annie Saunders about her show Our Country, which takes in siblings, marijuana, <laughs> that's what my mum calls it, and the Wild West, and is currently on at 5.15pm at Bruford in Summerhall until August the 26th. 
I have a Natto Scottish musician, Carla J. Easton, ahead of the Since Yesterday event at the Edinburgh International Festival on Friday the 24th of August. The tagline for that is the unsung women pioneers of Scottish pop, which is more than reason enough to go if you can. We love having a chat with you. So, you know, talk to us via Twitter, where you can find us at Standard Issue UK or individually on at Mixter Noonan. That's me. Hello there. At that Dunleavy, which is Hannah. And at Inspiragent, which is, you guessed it, the Genster. That's all from me. And so until the next time, stay frosty. Standard issue for all women.